Good morning. My name is Barry Steiner. I'm the student pastor here at BCC, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning as we continue through this series called Transformation. And one of our core values here at Bettendorf Christian Church is that transformation is our pursuit. We want to be pursuing it. And it's been our hope throughout this series that we're taking the things that we have been learning each and every week and applying them to our lives and allowing God to transform us from the inside out. We've also been trying to identify some of the hurdles and some of the obstacles that might try to get in the way and may try to prevent us from fully allowing these things to transform us. If you remember during the first week, we talked about how Scripture transforms us and how it is possible that each and every one of us can read and understand and interpret God's word. And then we talked about how prayer transforms us. We talked about the fact that it is so vital to our lives and how we can deepen our dependence on God when we pray. Last week, Pastor Derek, he taught that generosity is what transforms us. We learned how we can be more generous with not only our finances, but our time by being intentional with the blessings that God has given us in our lives and by trusting in him as we use those gifts. So in the same spirit of transformation this morning, I want to continue to talk about these things that can transform us. And this morning, I want to talk about how investing in the next generation transforms us. How investing in the next generation transforms us. And like, just like Pastor Derek said with generosity last week, I think every single one of us here this morning would agree to the fact that it's very important that we're spiritually investing in the life of the next generation. But if that's the case, if we really do believe that and we agree with that statement, then why are more of us not doing it? Why are more of us not investing in the next generation? And I think for many of us, maybe the biggest roadblock we all have when it comes to doing that, it all boils down to the word fear. I think we do. I think we fear that I'm too old. Or I fear that maybe I'm not hip enough or cool enough. I I, I fear that I don't exactly know what to say. Maybe there's a fear that I don't look the part. Or maybe I don't know enough about the Bible myself. Fear that I don't really relate to these younger generation. And, you know, maybe fear that they won't even like me. But can I just say, throughout my time as Being a student pastor, I've used all types of volunteers. I've used college students, newly married couples, single parents, young parents, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, young singles, young parents, parents with grade school kids or parents that have children within our student ministry. I've used empty nesters. I've used grandparents. I've used widowers. You know, even middle school and high school students who can help and volunteer in the children's ministry where they learn how to also pour into the next generation. 
Now, I want you to hear me this morning because this message isn't necessarily one about trying to recruit more volunteers for our children's and our student ministry, although it very well could be, but it's so much more than that. And that's what I want us to grab onto today. Because at BCC, another one of our core values is that relationships are our priority. And this is our vision. This is what we want to see start to happen in the years to come. We want to start to see this cross-pollination of multi-generational ministry begin to happen. And this is what I mean. Let me explain. We want our church to be a multi-generational church. And this is more than just having programs for every age group. Yes, we want to have an incredible children's ministry. We want to have a dynamic student ministry for our 6th through 12th grade students. We want to have a vibrant young at heart ministry for our 55 and older crowd. You know, and yes, we want programs and we want ministries for every age group in between. But this is not what I'm talking about when I say that we want to be a multi-generational church here at BCC. What I mean is this. We want this to be a church that values each and every generation. That there would be no prejudice between the generations that no one would think that one generation is more important than the other. Because all ages need to be valued. Each one of them brings something to our church family. You know, it's our prayer and it's our vision that all age groups would interact with one another, that they would hang out together, that they would pour into each other, and that mentoring and discipleship could begin to take place. And I truly believe all this can happen when we invest time in the next generation. Now to walk us through this idea this morning, I want to begin by looking at the book of Joshua. And I want to start in the 24th chapter I believe this is a familiar passage to a lot of us. In fact, it's one of those famous passages you see on signs hung up in in people's homes. But what's happening here is this is taking place right before his death. Uh, Joshua declares to the people there that he and his household would serve the Lord. Let's read it together. Joshua 24, 14, and 15 says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river um, and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I love this passage of scripture. This is one of those awesome passages in God's word that that just inspires us. It's something that we can get excited about. It's something that as a church, we can rally around together. That me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And in the 31st verse of this same chapter, we see that the next generation who outlived Joshua, they knew about God's works among the nation of Israel. If we look at Joshua 24, 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. You know, we use this verse, but 
here lately, several times even in the, fa- the, the last couple months, Pastor Derek has, has brought us to Judges chapter 2, which is just a few pages further into Scripture. But as we turn there, we kind of come out of this same situation. It's, it's found in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It's almost a complete repeat of what we just read in 31. But it says this, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went, each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So it sounds like things are going according to plan. Joshua gets up. He has this great speech. People become impassioned. They go out. They live for the Lord. But if we move to verse 10, this is what it says. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or or the work that he had done in Israel. So in just a couple generations, we have people who are impassioned about God and who he is and the incredible work that that he's done in their life. Just a few short generations later, we have a generation who knows nothing about him. I think some of you may be familiar with author and speaker Bruce Wilkinson. He He's author of books like prayer, uh, The Prayer of Jabez, uh, Secrets of the Vine, but he's also the founder of Walk Through the Bible Ministries. And he once shared this powerful message called The Three Chairs. All right, not to be confused with the three bears, but the three chairs. <laughs> and listen, what this describes is it describes the generational impact found throughout Scripture. What he says is this he's pointing out that there's this fade from knowing the goodness of God to knowing nothing of him in just three generations, or as he puts it, three chairs. The first chair here, this is the generation that knows God intimately. Man, they are on fire for him. They know him. They know of his goodness. They know of what he has done. That's the first chair. The second chair is the next generation, this person's child. And typically, they know about God. They've heard about God from chair number one, but they've yet to make their faith their own. They're yet to make it personal. They know of God's goodness, but they really don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So by the time we get to the third chair, this is a person who knows nothing about God. Nothing has made it down here. Because this person never made it personal. They knew about him, but never made it personal. It never gets passed to this chair. And this person knows nothing about the goodness of God and is actually confused as to why anybody would even believe in a creator and a savior that died on a cross. And I think we see actual examples of this in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to use extreme, extreme cases, but what I want to show is what can happen when maybe the wrong thing is being passed from this chair to this chair and then onto this chair. I think we start to see it right away in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob. Yes, Abraham, we hear all about the fact that Abraham is faithful. He has a personal relationship with God. He would almost call it intimate. But there becomes a point in Abraham's life where he loses his faith just a little bit and he lies. He lies. He says that his wife is his sister to protect himself. And so he lies a couple times. It's not just a one-time thing. But what we see is this lie being modeled for number two. 
Isaac. To where when we finally get to Jacob, does anybody know what Jacob is known for? His deceitfulness. So instead of seeing somebody who's been hearing about the glory of God the way he should, he's seen a lie, he's seen a lie, and now he's a deceiver. We also see it in the life of David, in Solomon, in Rehoboam. We know that David was faithful. He's called a man after God's own heart, but maybe he passed the wrong things to his son as well because we know that he was tempted and he gave in to that temptation with Bathsheba. We know that Solomon, we just know about Solomon (laughs) because he had many, many more. And by the time it gets to Rehoboam, we have a son who divides, wickedly divides, in fact, the kingdom of Israel. In just a short time, in just three generations, in all of these stories, we see how we have somebody who's passionate and knows about God, and by their third generation, we have somebody who is so confused. So we've gone from somebody who's totally committed to somebody who begins to compromise their faith, to somebody who is so completely confused, they know nothing about the faith of their grandparents. So parents who are here this morning, grandparents who are here, could you imagine your grandchild knowing nothing about God, knowing nothing about his goodness and what he's done for them and what Christ has done on the cross? This is what has happened in the book of Judges. And sadly, this is what we're starting to see in our world today. This isn't a brand new thing. This has been going on from the beginning. But I think we start to see what happens when maybe we invest the wrong things or we set the wrong example. If sports are what's most important to this person, then that's what's going to be the most important to this person, possibly. If extracurricular activities is what's being shown, that's what we're going to get. So if this person is not modeling their faith, if this person is not active in the church, if this person is not faithful in Scripture and passing it down here, it will never get here. And many of us wonder what's wrong in our world today. Is it possibly because this three-chair theory is so correct and it's so, so sad? The goodness of God is not translated down there and there's nothing but confusion. Maybe before we go any further, it might be a good idea to really have a working definition of what family really is or at least maybe the way that God sees family. You know, in his book, The DNA of D6, and what it's talking about with D6 is talking about Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the building blocks of generational discipleship. Ron Hunter Jr., he says that the context of Scripture is clear. He said, God defines family as generations of dads and moms influencing their children and grandchildren. Say that one more time for the folks at home. As God uh, defines family as generations of dads and moms influencing their children and grandchildren. You know, he designed and he talked about the ideal home in Scripture. He says it's having a father and a mother loving one or more children in a way that he, our Heavenly Father, loves us. 
I truly believe it was God's intention for parents to coach their kids towards spiritual growth so that they in turn could teach their kids the same way. However, I think we would all agree, we all recognize that we don't live in an ideal society. In fact, just this week I was, I was reading an article that was taken by the Census Bureau, or this is according to the Census Bureau, that among the 130 million households right now in the United States, only 18% feature married parents with children. So 130 million households in the United States, only 18% featured married parents with children. I don't think it was ever God's desire for marriages to end in divorce. We know it's happening. But I also see this throughout Scripture. God blesses single mothers, and he uses them. The family is not always an ideal set of parents and kids doing what God intended for them to do. And I think the Bible reminds us of that. The Bible gives us a lot of adapted models of generational discipleship. I think we see the traditional model, like we kind of pointed out here with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's father passing it on to their son who will pass it on to their son. It flows through the generations. I think we also see in Scripture the related model. We see Mordecai in the Old Testament who was pouring into teaching, raising his niece, or his cousin, I'm sorry, um, uh, Esther. We kind of see the one-parent model. We see that with uh, Timothy's mother, Eunice. Now, we know Timothy's grandmother was invested and involved as well, but what we really see is a single parent who seems to be carrying out the whole spiritual lead of parental influence in Timothy's life. But then we also get the adopted model. The adopted model where Paul mentions that he has like spiritually adopted in the faith Timothy, and then we also see it with Titus. So we, peop- we see people in Scripture, yes, pouring into their own children, but we also see people pouring into others. You know, the vital truth that I think we, we need to remember this morning is that God wants the church to help shape the home, especially those homes that are broken and, and damaged And I think he wants us to do that. I think he wants us to pour into them and help shape them into exactly what he intends for the home to be. A place where we can invest in the next generation and that generation can then invest as well. You know, God speaks about the power of generational discipleship throughout all of scripture. I think he begins making his intention clear right from the beginning, right with creation, with Adam and Eve. If you remember in Genesis 1.28, he tells Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But I want you to know this morning that this, this command, it is not limited to physical procreation. I think we kind of realize that in the genealogies of Genesis 5, you know, the earth had grown extremely populated during that time. They had been fruitful and they had multiplied. And if that's all God meant, all's well and good, but I don't think so because God showed his disappointment in these multiplied people because of their sin. And then we know we get a do-over with the flood and then God speaks again to Noah's family in Genesis 9 and he says, be fruitful. And so maybe a clear understanding of what it means to be fruitful and to multiply, maybe the essence of his intent was not just to have more children. I believe it was this. I believe God would say, multiply my presence on this earth through your children. 
don't just multiply children, but multiply my presence on this earth through your children. As we continue along in Genesis 18, God told Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, that he should direct his children and family in righteousness and justice. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, just a little bit after the passage we read, Moses instructed the family leaders to be able to answer all the questions that their children might have about everyday life, about how God shows his involvement in their everyday life and that their life has purpose and that their life has meaning. 700 years later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 38, 19, Hezekiah, he describes how each generation will define God's greatness based on what the previous one teaches them. You know, after the fall of Judah and Israel, God was still focused on the generations, passing along their faith and their values while they were rebuilding Jerusalem. Do you remember the great leader and the great contractor of that day of the wall, Nehemiah. He worked quickly to complete this building project, but about halfway through, he calls a timeout. He calls a timeout and he he calls all the leaders of the family together. And what he does is he gives them this charge. And the reason he does it is because the enemy is threatening to attack and the enemy is mocking God. And so Nehemiah, he calls the time out. He gets the leaders together and he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Man, what a powerful command that was back then. But I believe it is still so relevant to us today. We've got to fight for our families. There is a spiritual battle being fought each and every day for the souls of your children. Do we understand that? We need to step up and we need to fight for them. And the way we fight for them is by telling them about the goodness of God and about his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross and rose from the grave for them. That's what they need to be hearing. Other things are fine. Other things are good. But man, can I tell you, if the only time your child is in church is this one hour during the week, there's 167 other hours that they're dealing with that they're being flooded with who knows what. One hour can't compete with 167 others. There's an importance to be in church. There's an importance to have people in the church investing in your child. Maybe there's no greater passage in all of Scripture about generational discipleship than Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. As we start with 4 through 9, this is what we hear. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now these two verses, these two verses right here that I just read, they are being recited this morning, all over Jewish synagogues throughout the world. In fact, it goes beyond the synagogues. In fact, this passage of scripture right here is put on the door frames of their homes. They recite it every morning and they recite it every night. In fact, this passage of scripture is so important to them, it actually has a name in Hebrew. We call it the Shema. This is such a big deal. Shema, it's a Hebrew word, and it means exactly the very first word that we see up here, hear. It means to hear or or to listen. But I want to pause for a second because when we see this word here, whoop, they put up Shema, but the word here that was there, it means so much more than just sound waves entering our ears. 
The word's more than that. See, when we fully understand it, to shema, to listen, it means to pay attention to, to focus on. It means to act and do something, to actually respond to what you hear. In Scripture, when God asks somebody to shema, what he means is that they listen and that they obey. You know, here's why I pause on this word for a moment. Because beginning with the word Shema, Moses is saying this. He's saying, listen, Israel, pay attention to this. The Lord is God. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. So Israel, when you hear these words, you need to pay attention. Not only do you need to be paying attention, you need to respond by loving God. By loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, you need to respond to God with every part of you, your whole self, your entire being. So grab hold of this church. It's one thing to listen, but it's a completely other thing to shema. And maybe, just maybe this morning, the most important challenge you need to hear is to simply shema. Listen Pay attention and respond to the word of God. Pay attention to the Shema. So let's get to the point. The call of Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6 verses 4 through 9 is not only to personally live out the Shema in our own life, but it's to pass it on to the next generation. And this becomes very clear in the instructions that we see following the Shema. Check out verse 6. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So there's a call to live it out. And at the beginning of verse 7, it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. We need to pass it on to the next generation. What are we passing on? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. He continues in verse 7 through 9, he says, you shall talk with them or you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I think if we look at these verses closely, Moses presents this all-encompassing call to the people of Israel to raise up the next generation and to actually live out out the Shema. He's saying, do this all day long. If you, if you catch the when words here, and you might have to go back uh, in a slide, but it says, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise. He's saying that we do this in all settings, whether it's at our home, it says, or, or along the way or the road. He's saying that it needs to be of the highest priority. I think that's what he's getting at in verse 8. And he gives us this picture of actually having signs or symbols that are on our hands and they're bound to our foreheads or between our eyes, as this passage says. And finally, he's saying that it needs to happen while they are still under our roof. I think that's what he's getting at in verse 9 when he actually talks about and highlights our houses in our gates. I think there's a little more subtlety in this passage about this principle being laced all throughout Scripture on the importance of stilling faith during the formative years while they're still under our roof. 
and they're still in our care. Probably the most blatant scripture that challenged this idea is Proverbs 22.6, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think one of my favorite things we do here at BCC is have our child dedications. And if you're familiar with the child dedications, you probably know what this jar of marbles is. You know that our children's pastor, Taryn, she, during child dedication, she will hand one of these jars to the young parents who are dedicating their child, and she explains that each of these marbles represents one week of your child's life from zero to 18 years of age, and so 936, if you take 52 times 18, Taryn rounds it up to about 1,000 because we know that most people don't graduate right when they turn 18. So she rounds it up to a nice 1,000. But the, the whole point is that each week that this child is in your home, you take a marble out. And I've never actually asked her what we're supposed to do with the marble once it comes out. <laughs> it might end up under the refrigerator or in the couch cushions or maybe you can go back to playing that old game our grandparents and parents played, you know, marbles, you know. But there's a thousand of these. And each week we take one out, and each week really is one less time that we have our child in our home. One less week to pour into and invest in our child. And this is the representation we normally get, but I thought, what if we just tried to look at what this marble life cycle looks like and maybe look at the different stages? This this jar right here is what it looks like when a child goes into kindergarten. All right? When they go into kindergarten, there's about 624 marbles left. And, and this is a time of their life. It's the formative years. They're going to grade school. They're beginning to learn and develop and, and understand what things are in their life. And this takes them up through fifth grade, and then they go to middle school. We'll just say middle school. We'll say sixth grade. I know we've got students who go to different you know, school zones, and they might start junior high till seventh, but we'll say sixth grade, 364 marbles left, 364 hormonally charged marbles left, and at this point, this point right here, we're about two-thirds of the way done, two-thirds of the marbles are gone. By the time they enter high school as a freshman, 208 marbles left. And then, of course, this one right here. For those of you who have a senior in the house, 52 marbles left. And listen, we have wonderful admins in our building. I actually tasked them with counting out the marbles. They did. Every, every number I gave you, there's that many marbles. And when I looked at the 52, it was depressing. <laughs> I was like, are there really 52 marbles in there? And I just got a sense of what it must be like. And listen, let's pour about half of these out because we're halfway through our school year. I think this begins to illustrate for us how quickly, how quickly this goes. And the fact that as parents, we've been tasked with the responsibility to pour and to invest into our children each and every one of these weeks. Now, for you parents and you grandparents, you, you, you may be thinking, thanks, Barry, for equally depressing me and freaking me out. <laughs> I want you to know that neither of these emotions were my goal for you this morning. But I also know that 
Some of you might be resistant to this idea of there actually being a countdown taking place. Maybe you're thinking, don't make me focus on how much time I have left. Just let me focus on the now. (laughs) You know, let me focus right here, right now. Well, this visual of the marbles, they actually come to us from an organization called Orange. And Orange basically was developed. It's an organization that focuses on the strategic partnership between the church and the family in raising up the next generation. Reggie Joyner, who's the founder and the CEO of Orange, he says this when it comes to keeping track of our marbles. He says, when you see how much time you have left, you tend to get serious about the time you have now. When you see how much time you have left, you tend to get serious about the time you have now. And I want you to know that we don't want to count down in dread. Listen, instead, we need to pay attention to the time that we have left so we will be motivated to make this countdown actually count. Now, I want to pause for a moment. I want to make sure that each and every one of us are tracking with this sermon this morning. And, and I, I can almost guarantee you that grandparents, parents, you're probably tracking right along. And some of you, though, I want you to know I recognize you. I, I recognize those who are empty nesters. And I recognize those who aren't yet parents, maybe not even married. I, so, so I understand what it was like to be single. And there are those of you who are actually in this age group right here. Some of you are in this 0 to 18 age group, and you're thinking, what does this have to do with me? Maybe you're thinking, Barry, you're just wasting my time this morning, but I want you to know I'm not. And here's why. Here's where you come in, each and every single person in this room, where you come in. Because you're essential to all of this. You're essential. This is the responsibility of the family, yes. But it's also the responsibility of the church, which we're all a part of here. Listen, I believe the biblical model that is outlined for us in Deuteronomy 6 and in other places all throughout Scripture, I think it points to the home, yes, is the place where primary discipleship should be happening. But... The church family is here to work in partnership with the home. And when I see this partnership fully working, fully functioning, I want you to know it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You are important. Every single one of you are important to the spiritual development of the next generation. You know, in the world of children and in student ministry, there's this thing that we call the five-to-one ratio. And the idea of whether it's a weekly program that we have here at the church or if it's a retreat or a, a camp that we go to, to have one adult for every five kids, you know, we feel like that must be the good ratio to make sure every child is covered and that no fires are started, all right? So that's kind of where we've always landed. But Chap Clark, who's like this brilliant mind in the world of student ministry. He's at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's challenged this ratio. In fact, he asked the question, what if we flipped it? What if we flipped it from a five to one, I'm sorry, a one to five to a five to one, and basically what he's saying is, what if moms and dads in this church intentionally looked for other trusted adult Christians and tried to place five of these adults in their child's life, what would that look like? What would it look like for every one of our students to have five adults who cared about them, loved them, prayed for them, invested in them, 
hung out with them, made them feel important, made them feel valued, make them feel like they are a part of this, what would be happening? Students, what would happen if you actually intentionally maybe sat down with your parents and, and you went through this and you said, I'd like this person to invest in me? What if you actually went to that person and you, you asked them to take the time to pour into you? Listen, we live in a community where we have a lot of great adults. We have a lot of great mentors in our community. We see that in our educators, our teachers. We see it in coaches. Many of them even love Jesus. But I want you to know that they have limitations to what they can do and what they can say when it comes to the spiritual investment of your child. The church, however, the church is the place where we can be fully and unapologetically focused on Jesus Christ. We can be focused on our children and our students' journey with him and what he means to them and his goodness. So yes, empty nesters, single adults, married with children, married with no children, upperclassmen. You know, what if you were one of the five that invested in the lives of this amazing zero to 18 group that we have here at the church? You know, this finally brings me, like I said, to those of you who are the zero to 18. Listen, you need to ask somebody to invest in you. Why? Because the truth is, a willing heart and allowing this to happen is an absolute game changer in your life. It just is. You know, one of the things I've, I've noticed, I've, I've noticed this trend through my years of student ministry as I've worked with students, that those who actually take time to seek other adults out, that they surround themselves with adults, they surround themselves for their journey with Jesus, these are the ones that typically excel in their faith after they've graduated high school, when they enter the next phase in life. And students, listen, I know we can go after a lot of things in life. Parents, I know we do the same thing. You know, whether it be popularity or wealth or academic or athletic success, maybe some of us even pursue selfish or sinful desires. But what if you actually sought to surround yourself with people who are going to help you to help you learn to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Students, this is why it's important. It's important to be involved in the church. It's important to be involved in the student ministry. It's important to be a place where adults can pour into you and invest in you and show you that they care for you. I hope you're getting it at home. But if not, you can come and you can get it here for a couple hours every Sunday night from 5.30 to 7.30. There's my promo. <laughs> Listen, for everybody else, I want to make sure we all walk out of here with some motivation. With the motivation to step up to the call to pass on the Shema. To pass it on to the next generation like we're instructed. You know, what I want to do is I close this message is I want to give us some practical tips that we could use that might be worth considering when it comes to investing in the next generation. The first one is this, and this is for every single person in the room, that we shema the shema. Let's be a church that does not just hear the call of God to love him with all of our being. Let's be the church who listens, that pays attention to and responds to the call in every aspect of our lives. 
Secondly, and I'm thinking of parents here, make this countdown count. Make it count. Consider how you've done this past week in investing in your child. With this call to raise up your child in God, how have you done? In the way that your child should go, how have you done? Take time, take a moment to pray right now, asking God for the wisdom and the courage to make the most of the week that you have ahead of you. Remember, parents, you need to be the main spiritual investor in your children because if they're not seeing it here, man, by the time they get here, they're in sad shape. We've got to make an investment. Third, I'm thinking mainly kind of almost of those in this room who aren't a parent right now, maybe not a grandparent. Could you invest in the next generation? This is kind of our big, our BCC big idea today. So here comes my recruiting pitch, all right? But don't hear me just trying to fill up volunteer spots for our children's and our student ministry. Instead, I want to invite you into the biblical call to raise up the next generation. Yes, you can do this in an official volunteer role. We have a lot of spots available. There's a lot of opportunities that vary in style and commitment levels. If you'd be interested, I'm here to talk. Terrence here to talk. But this goes way beyond children's and student ministry. You know, what if a 30-year-old was mentoring one of our college students? Or what if someone in their 50s was discipling somebody in their 30s? What if a grandmother just took time each week to just mentor a, a new mom? You know, we can start by simply getting intentional with the relationships that we already have, the ones that are already present in our life. Maybe invite somebody out to coffee or have somebody over to your house for a meal. Start a connection group or get involved in one that is multi-generational. You know, one of the reasons, and I, I love this because I haven't really had parents question me on this. I think they get my point behind it. I hope I've communicated it well enough. But we basically stopped having a Sunday morning service for our students. And the reason we wanted to do that is because we believe that they're old enough and mature enough to be in here with everybody as a church family. That, and we want all our students coming to our 5.30 to 7.30 service to be invested in and be poured into by adults. Who do you know that you can pour into? Think back to the beginning of this year as we went through our Are We There Yet series. How can you disciple someone in a different stage of their spiritual life? If you're not sure, let me just give you a few suggestions of how to invest. First of all, just step up to mentor them. Intentionally find somebody in a different stage of life than you. Maybe set up a one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationship with them. It can be as simple as just getting with them and praying with one another or, or maybe studying a book of the Bible together. You can take time to pray for them because nothing spiritual can happen if God's not involved in the process. So it begins with prayer. And listen to them. Everybody wants to be heard, especially our young people. They want to know that they're heard. They want to know that they're important. Share with them. 
I believe many, many people in the next generation want an older person to share their life experiences and knowledge with them. By the way, you might just have a chance to learn from them as well. We can appreciate them. We can be intentional by letting that younger person know that they are valued, that they're needed, and that they're appreciated. Maybe my favorite thing to do would be to serve with them. You know, many people in the next generation, they're concerned about social justice. They're concerned about things that are happening in, in our world. And one of the great ways to connect with the younger generation is to serve with them. Listen, it's a privilege and it's an honor to work with younger people. I love the energy that they bring, the eagerness with which they approach their work and their ability to have fun while serving Jesus in such a wonderful way. You know, I also take great pleasure in my own life of devoting my time and my energy into those who will reach the nations for decades to come. So let me encourage you to do the same thing. And listen, you can be a blessing. Jesus is calling. He's telling us to get involved. Listen, you can be a blessing while you yourself are being blessed. Man, Barry, right during the main point. All right, all right. And finally, finally, identify the five. Identify the five. Students, like I've encouraged you already, sit down with your parents. Identify five adults that can help invest in your spiritual journey. What if you actually approached these individuals and said, hey, would you, would you invest in me? Would you pour into me? If your parents are already Christian, there's two right there. If you come on a Sunday night, we'll get you connected with a loving adult. That'd be three, maybe four, because some groups have two leaders. Furthermore, what if those of us who are over 18, what if we still continue to look for adults who are older and wiser, more mature in their faith to actually pour into us? What if you found somebody and said, pour into me? So as we close this morning, maybe, may we be a church who will shema the shema. Let us love God so much that would be, we would be obedient to his call to generational discipleship because it not only transforms those who are being invested in, it transforms those of us who are also doing the investing. So let's invest in the next generation and allow God to transform us. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for this call, Father, this call to Shema, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. God, help us to want to pass that on to the next generation. Father, help us not to see this three-chair model here at BCC or in our community any longer that we would invest in our children who will invest in their children, who will continue to invest in their children. Help us to uh, just make the most of this countdown if we still have our children in the house. Take advantage of every opportunity. And God, if we're somebody outside of this, help us to find ways to invest in the next generation ourselves. We pray for this church. We pray that we would be a church who loves each and every generation where relationships and friendships can take place where we're not a siloed group meeting here and a siloed group meeting there, but that we all meet together and that we love one another. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.